You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to Episode 8 of the Crisis in the Church series. We're joined again this week by Father Jonathan Loop, the principal of Immaculate Conception Academy, to dive a little deeper into the topic of Americanism. Last week, we talked about America's founding and the demographics of the Catholic Church. This week, we'll discuss the rapid growth of the Catholic schools, parishes, hospitals, and orphanages, and what that had to do with American exceptionalism. We'll also see how Pope Leo XIII both was in awe of the American Catholic Church and gave some grave warnings. And are these warnings being heard by American Catholics today? If you'd like to learn more about this series we're doing on the crisis in the church, or if you'd like to go back and revisit our previous seven episodes, or if you want to support this project, please visit sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Now we'll turn to our conversation with Father Loop. Well, Father Loop, thank you for joining us again for another episode of the Crisis in the Church series. And last week we were talking about Americanism, and we're going to be continuing on the same theme uh, today. So uh, for our listeners who may not have seen uh, last week's episode or just want a little bit of a refresher, uh, could we recap a little bit of what we were talking about? Oh, of course. So, broadly speaking, what we began last time was to look at the question of Catholicism in the American context. We made a point, of course, noting that Americanism, insofar as it's an error, does not have anything to do necessarily with a, a proper and well-ordered a patriotism to our native land, but rather a, a series of ideas and doctrines that, um, in one way or another, are very well tied to the liberalism and the ultimately the modernism uh, that has afflicted uh, society and ultimately the church. And in order to kind of get a context for that, we consider both the American founding, both uh, in the sense of who was deeply involved in that uh, religiously, and then also some of the philosophical underpinnings. We very, very um, briefly looked at John Locke, some of his principal writings, some of the basic ideas that he spoke about, which were very influential for the American founders, in which, let's say, uh, you can even find very uh, clear references to, in, say, the Declaration of Independence and what have you. Um, then we looked a little bit about the state of the church in the United States, which also plays a role in the kind of openness to what we'll see more in detail today. It's Americanism, both the initial um, uh, smallness of the numbers of Catholics, being uh, probably around 1% at most of the country's population at the time of the Revolutionary War, and then following that, the, the huge explosion in the numbers, especially after the 1840s and 50s, to the point that by the 1850s, Catholicism had become the single largest single religion in the United States. And the idea at that time was especially, okay, how do we overcome the long-standing hostility towards Catholicism? And what are we going to do as we begin, let's say, the second century of Catholicism in the United States? And that's really in a, the milieu in which this um, error really, truly took root and to which Leo XIII addressed uh, the encyclical test in Benevolencia in the 1890s. So when Leo XIII was writing this encyclical, um, he was, where we're starting today, uh, he was talking about this this American t- context where uh, there were some things happening within the church, in the American clergy, um, I guess what we would now consider something like the U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops, uh, but basically something something like that. Um, and there were some things that were happening within the Catholic Church in the United States uh, that he wasn't super happy with, to put it mildly, I guess. For sure. I mean, there's a very brief, a little bit of a, you know, the bishops at the time would always go out of their way to say, well, you know, what Leo XIII was talking about really, truly, as far as their errors don't apply to us, you know, no true good American Catholic would espouse these ideas, but in reality... Um, in some instances, I don't think they're just being honest with themselves. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so what we saw briefly uh, well, at the conclusion of our last conference was Leo XIII's beginning of that encyclical, Testament of Valencia, 
where he highlights the essential and underlying principle of Americanism. The main principle, the idea that in order to attract more easily those who differ from her, the church should shape her teachings more in accord with the spirit of the age, as well as relax some of her ancient severity and make some concessions to new opinions. But you can see that same tendency to say we need to adapt to current circumstances. We need to leave off certain elements of the Catholic life that characterized her in the past in order to be more attractive to those for whom those ancient either rites or ways of living um, simply don't speak to any longer. Right. This then leads him to talk about how the the church is being kind of democratized. It's 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 about the it's about the faithful kind of running the church instead of the other way around, which it should be. Correct. Right. It's definitely a large part of it. So, in fact, this in the remainder of the encyclical, uh, he highlights several areas where concretely that principle is leading to practical results in the American church uh, to a greater or lesser extent. Um, so the first of which is precisely what you're noting there is the, this question of a certain kind of democratization. Um, and he says that who can doubt that she, she will act in the same spirit again if the salvation of souls requires it. In other words, addressing certain changes that may potentially or reforms and need to be made. It goes on to say that in this matter, the church must be the judge, not private men, are often deceived by the appearance of right. In this, all who wish to escape the blame of our predecessor, Pius VI, must concur. He condemned as injurious to the church and the spirit of God who guides her, the doctrine contained in a proposition of the Synod of Pistoia, which took place in 1786, so right at the time of the American Revolution, roughly, okay. that the discipline made and approved by the church should be submitted to examination as if the church could frame a code of laws useless or heavier than human liberty can bear. So in wow. other words, you know, the idea there is that there's a growing sense that, okay, there should be an examination even on the part of those who um, are subject in the church. Um, you know, for example, there's a quote uh, from a bishop here, so it's not the laity as such, but it's a bishop with respect to Rome now, John England, who was um, a bishop in the 1830s and 40s, and he states that if the Pope were to issue a decision from which the majority of bishops were to dissent, or to which they refused their concurrence, such a decision would not be an act of the Church, and of course would not bind persons to obedience. Uh -huh. now, it's a pretty strong statement, and of course yeah. it comes before the First Vatican Council were that was more solemnly defined. Nevertheless, that was still a very minority opinion even before it was defined. And so it, it enters into this kind of leveling of the authority of the church, which is certainly going to be a major issue later on in the 1900s, and especially after the Second Vatican Council, you have uh, priest councils set up. So, you know, we can, we can compare, uh, and, and we'll get into obedience with the Pope uh, in a later episode, a much later episode, um, but you know th there there are cases where bishops, well, from our own experience, Archbishop Lefebvre does you know disobey the Pope. Uh, but what what Bishop England here is saying, what John England is saying, is is not that he's not saying well this is something that is uh, incorrect that the Pope is saying. He's simply saying well if the American bishops don't like it, we band together and say we don't like it. Then it doesn't exist. Then it's then it's a null and void proclamation. Uh, it's it's much more on the side of rebellion uh, than just not following a, a, something that the Pope says that may be inaccurate. Yeah, for sure. Perhaps a more um, viable modern example would be um, what the German bishops are currently doing. It's sure. synodality, which very um, has raised a lot of questions about whether or not they may just enter into a schismatic church because of the fact that we're doing these things we're going to make these decisions and that's sufficient as far as we're concerned mm -hmm. so now kind of tied to that um, Leo XIII points out that a number of these 
people who tend to downplay the need for an external guidance in, in the spiritual life. And with the idea being that in our times, God speaks more directly to individual souls. Mm. And the Holy Ghost will be more active in them personally. And they don't necessarily need the intermediary, ultimately of a hierarchy, to put them on the right path. Already there we can see a, a parallel to some extent with uh, what we've seen with Luther, and this idea that there's no intermediary between man and God, certainly in the form of an external hierarchy. And at the same time, especially with that emphasis on the Holy Ghost, and that was certainly something that Father Isaac Hecker was known for, the, the priest that we mentioned last time, you have the, what you can say, the seeds of Protestant Pentecostalism or Charismaticism, um, which is something that obviously was born right around the same time in the United States in the late 1890s, early 1900s, in mm-hmm. which, you know, it's, you know, especially it's called charismaticism because it's a claim that just as in the early church, the Holy Ghost will be given to individual souls and impart to them what we'll call charism, so the special gifts that St. Paul speaks about, for example, speaking in tongues, or what have you, or handling of snakes without being hurt. Right, these kinds of things, and in this same kind of charismaticism, it will definitely find a flourishing in the wake of the Second Vatican Council, especially here in the United States. Even the Archbishop Lefebvre used to comment on this quite a bit, saying that this spirit of charismaticism, this idea that God deals directly with souls, in the absence of the direction of the hierarchy, in the absence ultimately as well of the sacraments, those means that God has given to us to impart his grace, um, leads to the identifying on the part of any individual ideas of their own will with God's will, you know, ultimately. You know, because if you don't have that check, that external guide, then ultimately what other method of um, judgment or criteria do you have? It's it's very similar to someone who's uh, who's living by themselves for many many years. Uh, you know, it's yeah. it, it's yeah. very difficult uh, for them to, you know, let's say they get married very late in life or something like that. It's it's much more difficult for someone like that because you're used to just doing your own thing and you're not used to having that external check on, you know, really you're a slob. You know, <laughs> you know to, to be funny about it, <laughs> yeah, but things like that. Um, we we need that as humans. Again, we're social creatures. We need that check and balance, and we definitely need authority in terms of our faith. And the church provides that. But if we don't have the church, then you know the sky's the limit as to what we could believe or do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's no check. And one of the aspects of it, especially in the wake of original sin, is there's the added humility for it. You know, obviously, original sin is this act of pride. The real product that not infrequently, in addition to just going off on crazy tangents, um, is this profound uh, self-satisfaction, self-complacency. Um, you know, I that spoke of that in the terms of a Catholic priest who gets it in his mind, whether or not it's a result of this idea way of thinking, but that God wants me to do this. And if my superior opposes me, well, God, my spirit just doesn't have a good sense of the mind of God. What are we going to do? Right. So I have to struck my superior. Um, right. So what else is happening in, in the United States? We have we have more of this a lesser need, so to speak, need for for external guidance. Um, are there any other characteristics of you know something that's happening in, in the church in the United States at this time that's that Pope Leo Thirteenth is really pushing back on? Yeah, and I think you know the, another let's say error that he really highlights is a shift in attitudes about what really constitutes true Catholic virtue. Mm. And in a way, I would say this is very closely tied to this um, idea of a greater initiative, greater sense of dealing directly with the Holy Ghost, because really a lot of these authors, like Father Hecker or Bishop Ireland, when they speak about this greater initiative, this greater... Mm, influence of the Holy Ghost is not in the context of greater and more deep spirits of contemplation, but rather in greater activity, and especially external activity. So the Pope notes that um, there's this unhealthy 
emphasis on natural virtue as at the expense of supernatural virtue. And as what he says is, in fact, it's not just natural virtue as such, but certain natural virtues, those which are, as he puts it, more active than passive. You know, for example, I think one that the average American would be very familiar with, and in fact, typically pride himself on, would be, we could say, industriousness. You know, sure. I, work, I work, you know, you think about um, guys, young guys, bragging about how many hours a week they work. You know, when I was in college, I used to do that all the time. Yeah. You know, certainly not a, necessarily as such a bad thing, but... Um, what the, the Pope, I believe, what people saying is that there's this really unhealthy, exaggerated emphasis on these kinds of uh, virtues, which depreciate and degrade the sense of the spiritual life, truly, the real sense of the spiritual life. And a lot of Catholics here in the United States viewed the best way to, to practice their faith simply in outward works. And it's true, what you do see, in fact, is this huge explosion of, uh, let's say, the building of churches, building of hospitals, building of schools, even building of uh, convents and religious life, but a lot of which were more focused, let's say, on the act of apostolate. So, for example, if you look at religious sisters, um, you know, at the time of the Second Vatican Council, you kind of had the apex of the number of sisters in the United States. You're dealing with upwards of 180,000 um, sisters, of which um, about 100 to 110,000 were involved in the teaching of kids at schools, which is a very important thing. You know, but it's just there's this huge emphasis on that. And the numbers are quite striking. You know, a lot of people really, a lot of even Catholics in Europe were very impressed. Uh, those kinds of numbers, that kind of external success that you, that you saw. Um, in fact, it's just as a, you know, when Archbishop Lefebvre, when he was the Superior General of the Holy Ghost Fathers, and was dealing with more or less the rebellion in the order in 1968. So he went to, I, I think it's a congregation for the religious in Rome, and I apologize. The secretary was not there, so he dealt with the undersecretary, and so he, he spoke to him about all this revolutionary behavior effectively. And the undersecretary is like, oh, well, you know, basically, I've had another major spirit come to me with a very similar situation. I'll give you the same advice I gave him. Just go take a tour in the United States and you see what's going on there. And there you really have a sense of how to, uh, what the church is capable of and really kind of what the fruits of what is going on in the world will be. At that point, the church is like, okay, I'm resigning because <laughs> <laughs> there's no support here. Um, wow. So... Um, and it's perhaps a quotation from, you know, again, Bishop Ireland, just to get a sense of this, you might say, spirit, at a certain point stated that, you know, an honest ballot and a social decorum among Catholics will be more for God's glory than midnight flagellations or Campostellan pilgrimages. Hmm. In other words, you know, he, he contrasts here two uh, classes of things. On the one hand, these natural activities, you know, being intelligently participating in the electoral process and, you know, basically carrying yourself well, being more worth than acts of faith, you know. So that's what's one aspect of what he says. There's a constant emphasis on, let's say, the natural and human uh, excellence and glory of the United States that Catholics should love and should strive to support and defend and develop as much as possible. It's really rather striking. I mean, it's just this kind of, a, it's almost an open-mouthed admiration of um, the United States, the Constitution, et cetera, the state. So, so we have so we have bishops like, like John Ireland and we have the, the priests and, and the clergy in the hierarchy. Uh, and if I can kind of sum up what you've been saying, they... They are saying, look how Catholic we are because we have built these hospitals and these schools and these beautiful churches, and look, the faith is flourishing. And then you have uh, prelates back in Rome and, and maybe even the Holy Father himself saying, fine, 
good. These things are all very good, but where's your faith? Where is your where's your spirit of of prayer and mortification? You know, you can have all of these things. These are good, but I can I you know to mix metaphors. You're kind of building all of these things on sand if you don't have a solid foundation yourself of your own interior life, your own mental prayer. Uh, and and Pope Leo XIII is kind of seeing this this kind of creeping. I don't want to say secularism because they're doing it all for the church, but mm-hmm. it is kind of a secularism. Well, I would say naturalism more. Naturalism, like, okay. Yeah, so, I mean, there's an element of a secularism too, but it's more just this trust in natural means in okay. one degree or another, um, whether it be uh, on the individual level, like trusting one's own judgment, one's own, uh, let's say, it's kind of strange to call this a naturalism, but one's own personal relationship with God outside of the supernatural reality of the church. Right. Or the naturalism of this emphasis on outward activity that's tangible and it's visible and which is more accessible to the average Protestant for whom um, the life of prayer is just a mystery. You know, mm. The Protestants are just that's completely cut off from them. I mean, just if you think back to the, the origins of the Anglicans, their origin was a rejection of the authority of the church to, on the one hand, to judge on the marriage that Henry VIII had with Catherine of Aragon. And then secondly, it was um, really solidified by the attack of Henry VIII on the monasteries, mm-hmm. saying that these are all well useless, it's all, we've all gained this wealth which serves no purpose. And we're going to shut all the monasteries down. And that really shaped that vision of what a religious life would be like. I mean, just you don't have a place for the contemplative life. For Sure. So you were saying also the, this is, the American experiment is representing kind of the future for the Catholic Church, um, according, to, according to these people. And... I, I'm, I'm kind of reminded as, as you're saying that of this this doctrine of American exceptionalism that's very much um, very much touted by by Protestants saying you know this is you know to quote Ronald Reagan the shining city on the hill when he himself was actually quoting scripture whatever the quotes are getting mixed up but yeah um, but this American exceptionalism and this is above all else what we need to strive for um, and this is starting to creep into what what the clergy in the United States are, are saying as well. Oh, for sure. In fact, I mean, some of the uh, comments, we'll get to them in a moment, I think of John, uh, Bishop John Allen, that they're really rather dramatic. Mm-hmm. There's this vision of the United States being the culmination of, let's say, ultimately the gospel. Is, mm-hmm. is how he, so this was given at the speech that he gave on the centenary of the founding of the American hierarchy. So this is uh, given in Baltimore in 1889. He says, We cannot but believe that a singular mission is assigned to America, glorious for itself, and beneficent to the whole human race. And then he goes on to say, In all truth, the greatest epic of human history, if... If we accept that which witnessed the coming of God upon earth is upon us, and of this epic, our wisdom and our energy will make the church supreme mistress. Wow, that's true. It's a pretty dramatic claim that you know we're in the time that's second only to the. You know, it's almost it's it almost the way it's phrased there, like an afterthought. Oh yeah, by the way, our Lord came down on earth. So that that was a more important time. But Except for that little event, just that thing, yeah. right? Yeah. This is the, the best and most important time. Um, it, it's, there's another speech that he gave, this time at the commencement to the Third Council of Baltimore in 1884, where he says, Thou, America, bearest in thy hands the brightest hopes of the human race. God's mission to thee is to show nations that man is capable of the highest liberty or be ever free and prosperous, that liberty may triumph over the earth from the rising to the setting of the sun. Be thou perpetual, esto perpetua. What's very striking about that, and I think this goes back to what we were seeing in Testament of Valencia, it's this 
um, depreciation of what is supernatural for natural values because he speaks of the highest liberty. Yes. And that's interesting because it can bring to mind the title of the encyclical of Leo XIV, Libertas Prestantissima, liberty, the highest gift to man. But what Leo Thirteenth is ultimately speaking about there is the liberty by which you're able, as our Lord says, to be made free of the children of God, the sons of freedom, the sons of God. Whereas what John Ireland is clearly referencing here is not that supernatural freedom from sin, but rather political liberty. It's a, it's a liberty sure. on the human order of things. Um, but the sense that I have is that as time goes on, he gets more and more enamored with the American project and more and more what we can speak of as an American myth. Um, and, you know, his praise of the United States becomes ever more dramatic and I would say absolute um, as the years go by and the various speeches that are given at these major functions. And it's true. I mean, we should note that at the beginning of that speech at the Third Council of Baltimore, it goes on for some time. Common Committee wants, certainly, that America be converted to Catholicism. Like, he does speak in that manner. Okay. Um, and rather emphatically. It's just that what is being converted, and of course, that's going to impact his vision of the relations of the church, you know, the American church, and you know, all these matters. And this is, this is uh, an interesting, I don't want to say a dichotomy because it's not a split, but this is an interesting thing to look at when we, when we look at industriousness and, and you know, the old work as if everything depended on you, pray as if everything depended on God. Yeah. I, I believe that's St. Teresa of Avila, is that right? Uh, there's several that's attributed to one more commonly, St. Ignatius of Avila. Or St. Ignatius, okay. Um, so, I mean, we're called upon to work. We're called upon to be industrious. That's a good thing. Uh, but, but again, lying beneath that is that prayer. You know, pray as if everything depends on on God, uh, mm-hmm. and and it's, you know, you you look at these bishops, and to be a successful, I guess you could say, bishop in terms of opening some schools and keeping things, you have to be a bit industrious. You have to take on the work and 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 do all the things. Um, but, and I've referenced this in a couple podcasts before, but bishops, their care is not just about the salvation of people's lives. Their care is people's souls. Uh, you, you mentioned at the beginning that the, that the church was kind of the, the hope, or I'm sorry, the, that America, that the American church was the hope of the Catholic church. Um, in what ways would this be seen? Um, was this, did, did people outside of America see the American experiment and, and the American uh, hierarchy as being the hope? Or was that the Americans saying that, that, that we are the hope of the Catholic church? Um, I would say that it's kind of a, Certainly for the Americans, uh, men like uh, John Ireland, uh, Cardinal Gibbons, you know, certainly they would view it in that light. And you do have certainly a number of um, people on the continent who had a similar opinion in Paris who were praising uh, Father Hecker and saying that he's you know, this incredible model of a priest of our times, let's say. But yeah, certainly for the Americanists, that's kind of how they viewed this. And I think... Um, it was really for a couple of reasons that they had that in mind. In the first place, um, partly because they viewed it, the, the civil liberty of the United States and uh, the democratic republican institutions as being somehow uh, most in tune with what they judged to be the Catholic spirit. You have the gospel, it's good, and the church has been there. For 1,800 years, slowly, slowly, slowly impregnating society with the Spirit until finally at last, not in the ages of Christendom, so not in the ages of you know, St. Bernard or the Crusades or St. Dominic, St. Francis of Assisi, none of them, but in the age of the United States, you have the gospel writ large in human society. So that's, that's one aspect of it. The second aspect of why they viewed the United States as the hope for the future is that it redefined the relationship between church and state and assured religious liberty. And they see that as being a large step forward for the church, and for the true religion of God, or let's say the true religion, and um, as such infinitely superior 
to what was going on in Europe, especially. And there's a couple of elements of this. And I think, firstly, for a number of them, at least initially, they viewed there being a, a very distinct difference between civil religious liberty and, and let's say, um, indifferentism. They wanted to make a, They wanted to try to make a distinction there. Um, saying that on the one hand, and I'll, I'll give a quote from John Carroll, where he says to in a letter to a priest in England that I am glad, however, to inform you that the fullest and largest system of toleration is adopted in almost all the American states. Public protection and encouragement are extended alike to all denominations, and Roman Catholics are members of Congress, assemblies, and hold civil military as well as others. The implication you know, being that civil intolerance is not essential. Um, that, in fact, you can permit uh, ultimately religious liberty, you know, granting indiscriminate freedom to all these, as he calls them, denominations later. But Okay. So this, this religious liberty that is, being, uh, that is being preached, I guess we could say, by, by Bishop Carroll in his letter to, to Father Plowden, um, are, is, is that a good thing what he's proposing or is that uh, uh, not so good and maybe he's missing the mark a little bit? So based on the writings and I apologize with Bishop Carroll, I did a paper with him in, in college, which is sure. interesting going back to read that. Um, and for him, it was much more, it was uh, crossing the line, I would say between a matter of um, prudence to the measure of principle. We started to say, this is a better arrangement. So, um, this this religious liberty this is uh, very different from what was happening in Europe. So this is why this is such a striking uh, example of what's happening in the Catholic, or not a striking example, but it's a striking uh, occurrence that's happening in, in the church at the time. Uh, people mm-hmm. in in European countries just were not experiencing what what Catholics in America were, and and I guess in some respect you can kind of understand why uh, these clergymen in America at the time were very proud of what was happening because, hey, look, we have this. Um, but I th- you said it perfectly, Father. They're taking it from a principle of, of toleration into a principle of this is the best uh, avenue forward. Correct. No, it's true. I mean, it, right in that time, the 1880s and 90s, it's, I mean, there's a, basically you're in the midst of an all-out war in Europe against the faith. Um, you know, so you have the fall of the papal states to effectively the Masonic uh, Italian government um, under Garibaldi, Cavour. You have a continuing and more deliberate and systematic war by um, the atheists in power in France against the church, which will culminate, we can say, in the law of separation of church and state in 1905 which uh, in France, which St. Pius X had to deal with, and which effectively forbade any religious from teaching in education period, which um, nationalized um, all property of the church. You know, as a contrast to that, so again, that, that, those are just some few examples, but that spirit, that overriding spirit, was governing uh, most of the continental uh, former Catholic states and as a contrast to that, you have a, where uh, in the state of Oregon, you had a, an influx of anti-Catholics. In fact, a Ku Klux Klan, the legislature, in fact, passed a law that forbade Catholic schools. And then some church sued, and the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court overturned it, stating, in fact, that there was not a right of parents to educate their children as they would. And it's, it was so striking that Pope Pius XI actually mentioned that court case in his uh, encyclical on education of being a religious magistrate. You know, that would just not happen in, in these European countries at that time. Right. And so, we, like you said, we do have some truth here where the you know, this separation of church and state in Europe is very different from what's happening in, in the United States, in, in America. But it's, uh, it still doesn't mean that the separation of church and state is, as it exists currently in America or happened then in America was a was was an exceptional thing. Correct. Or maybe I mean it's we could perhaps say it's exceptional unless you mean well, that return sure. that's exceptionalism that's more, more awesome. Right. Um, um more the question is is it the good or the proper thing? And 
I think um, the way to really look at that is Louis the Thirteenth, a little bit later than the Encyclical Testament of Anselm, wrote the second one to American bishops, addressing it specifically to Cardinal Gibbons, in which he addresses more in detail this um, this aspect of viewing the American situation as the future of the Church and as the best arrangement for the Church. Um, as, as somehow being the harbinger of what the state of the church should be in the future. And it's called Ringinka Oceani. It's a, it's a very good encyclical, and it's, you see the fatherly heart of Louis XIII because he goes out of his way to precisely we kind of started the previous podcast to say, look, you, you as Americans have a great deal of history and heritage, which you can be legitimately proud. You know, it's this great. Um, comment about, I don't know, I'll just read this again at the beginning. Um, he states that at the very time when the popular suffrage placed the great Washington at the helm of the Republic, the first bishop was set by an apostolic authority over the American church. The well-known friendship and familiar intercourse which subsisted between these two men seems to be an evidence that the United States ought to be conjoined in concord and amity with the Catholic church, and not without cause. For without morality, the state cannot endure. In other words, he has this high admiration. And it's interesting, because even in a way, you might say, agrees with aspects of what John Ireland and other Americanists, we can say, state about the, the rule of America. Louis um, XIII says, Another consideration claims our honest attention. All intelligent men are agreed, and we ourselves have with pleasure intimated it above, that America seems destined for greater things. Now it is our wish that the Catholic Church not only share in, but also bring about this perspective greatness. So, again, so Louis XIII, his balance, he starts off at encyclical saying there's a lot of truth to elements of what you're saying about the good that's present in your, in your country, as well as, you know, even in a sense, the future. Although, what's absent here is this idea that um, the church is the, or I'm sorry, America is the promise for the future. That's absent, right. the 13th assessment. He then moves on to address directly this idea that the situation of the church in the United States and this liberty and the spirit of liberty that's behind it is, in fact, ideal for the church. But moreover, a fact which it gives us pleasure to acknowledge, thanks are due to the equity of the laws which obtain in America and to the customs of a well-ordered republic. For the church amongst you, unopposed by the constitution and government of your nation, fettered by no hostile legislation, protected against the violence by the common laws and the impartiality of the tribunals, is free to live and act without hindrance. There you can clearly see he's contrasting it to the European situation, which is not at all the case. But then he goes on. Yet, Yet, though all of this is true, it would be very erroneous to draw the conclusion that in America is to be sought the type of the most desirable status of the church, or that it would be universally lawful or expedient for state and church to be, as in America, dissevered and divorced. The fact that Catholicity with you is in good condition, may as even enjoying a prosperous growth, is by all means to be attributed to the fecundity with which God has endowed his church, in virtue of which, unless men or circumstances interfere, she spontaneously expands and propagates herself. But she would bring much more abundant fruits if, in addition to liberty, she enjoyed the favor of the laws and the patronage of the public authority. That's um, it's it's fascinating reading this, and, and I have not read this, and I want to now. I'm going to find it and and read it more in detail. Uh, thing is, is he's almost saying, uh, and and again, correct me if I'm reading this incorrectly. He's almost saying, yeah, the church is growing in America, but it's growing because it's the church, not because it's America. And it would be even better if it would be allowed to be fully integrated within the state. I think there's a very important um, observation there because. That's precisely, you might say, the um, it's subtle, but it's true, critique of men like Cardinal Gibbons and Bishop Allen, who are seeing or who are envisioning that somehow 
that really the church is flourishing in America not because of her intrinsic virtue uh, and the spirit of the Holy Ghost which animates her, but because of the institutions of liberty that you find there, um, right. and which are really ultimately, even if they're, let's say, distinct from, let's say, uh, the idea of liberty that you find in France or in uh, later Germany and Italy, it still is an idea that's born to the church, ultimately. And I think, uh, maybe just to, to conclude, we can look at why, from other writings of Leo XIII, the American Constitution is not the ideal arrangement, uh, at least between those situations of church and state. Okay. Um, and there's actually a lot that we can say about that. Um, but to just kind of highlight a few major points. In the first place, and most obviously, is that in America, you have a situation where the state will not publicly worship God. The people somehow claim that they have no new debt to God, and that they are free, whether they choose or not, to give him worship. Um, the United States is very deeply enmeshed in, in, in that idea of liberalism that says that we can separate the state from God. Pius IX from the Syllabus of Errors you know, condemns the, the proposition that you know, somehow if you have religious uh, civil liberty, that is not going to lead to indifferentism. And we're all fundamentally informed by that. We all drive by, you know, the average Lutheran church, the average Mormon church. We're like, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. That's normal that they're there. It is. It is fascinating. And and one thing that is, uh, and 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 this might be going backwards a little bit to what we were talking about before. But and I know you're kind of wrapping up. But it, it's fascinating to me that um, you know God's God's will and God's providence is is acting in in ways that we just don't understand. Um, he's using he's using Protestants, he's using Puritans, he's using people who are basically deists uh, to found the nation, uh, such that it can grow for Catholics. Um, but again, that doesn't mean that the system of government and that the country itself is is anything uh, really wonderful and great. It is wonderful. It's it's great we're living here, but it's he's he's setting up a nation that's formed on Protestant ideas and really rebellious ideas and liberal ideas so that the Catholic Church can grow. And it's that's striking to me. No, it's true. It's, it's a very fascinating aspect of God's providence that we can say that he can make use of anything to further his purposes. Like the little 13th observed that. Sure. It's fascinating. Now, yes, another aspect, maybe just to continue this conclusion, another aspect of the, the insufficiency of the American arrangement, this the unhealthy liberty really... Um, tends to um, in, um, tends to undermine the work of the church, really undermine its work. It's, there's an attempt to base the laws merely on the natural law. And again, it's uh, naturalist that Leo the Thirteenth talks about. It's it's not the extreme form, and, and in fact, this is one thing that really separates America from, let's say, um, later European political orders, is that they wanted to, to look to nature. They wanted to look to an order that existed in the inner way of human will and human mind and model themselves off that. But it was, that's all that they wanted to do. They didn't want to, let's say, make the revealed law of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ the foundation of the laws of the state. And so Leo XIII in Immortality says there, in this way, kind of applies to America, that there are others somewhat more moderate, they're not more consistent who affirm that the morality of individuals is to be guided by the divine law, but not the morality of the state. For, since God is the source of all goodness and justice, it is absolutely ridiculous that the state should pay no attention to these laws or render them aborted by contrary enactments. It's, and that's very much the case in, in the U.S., you know, it's, which long, long before even of those European countries would permit divorce, um, would... Um, and permit a, a whole host of, say, um, practices which were contrary to the, the church's teaching. And just, not only that, just didn't even enter into the lawmaker's mindset like, that we should consider what the church has to say. Right. There, there's, in, in, in a lot of these countries, there would be not even a thought given to, oh, why should we allow that? It, it would be very foreign to them. Yeah, no, exactly. 
Well, this has been this has been a, a fascinating uh, couple of talks, couple of episodes with you, Father. Thank you for for going through it with us. And uh, and again, to reiterate, this is not to say that America is an is an awful place. It's not, not at all. Um, it's it is a, allowing us a great deal of of freedom to practice our faith, um, but a lot of that can be very very much misplaced and and put in the wrong box. It's it's put more in that natural box, like you were saying, instead of attributing it to to God's providence. Correct. Yes. I'm very happy to have been born in the United States. Sure. State. And, and in fact, you know, indeed, uh, my own uh, college education, my, my major was in uh, American politics. Well, mm-hmm. politics and classical politics, political philosophy. And there's, there's a lot on the natural level to admire about, let's say, the American project and what have you. Um, it's just at the same time, of course, um, that the influence of the American project, as taken as it is, because it was so immersed in a merely natural horizon, and one in which there's this overemphasis on aspects of certain aspects of human life, such as liberty, it had a fairly deleterious effect on Catholics in the United States, whether it be from the point of view, as we saw the question of certain aspects of the internal life of the church, whether it be the government of the church, how that's supposed to work, or the interior life, how to really uh, practice that, how to truly grow in holiness under the guidance of the fatherhood of uh, pastors of the church, um, or just this depreciation of those more, uh, let's say, supernatural virtues that are so highly praised by our Lord and such an integral part of the Catholic life, such as obedience, humility, meekness, and what have you, or in this understanding of, okay, uh, what is the role of the United States in, in the life of humanity and for the Church? Um, it's very easy to have this exaggerated notion of uh, the importance of our country and the vision that it's let's say, the best arrangement. I mean, that was obviously this era that these men fell into for various reasons. In the end, it's because of that natural ambience and that underlying liberalism that forms a part of that, this overemphasis on human freedom, it tends to sap the life of the church and to deform our ability to truly be docile to God. In a sense, you can say that... Um, there's a, you know, the concrete effect for the average American Catholic is an unhealthy spirit of independence, this uh, sense of self-sufficiency, whether um, one's spiritual life, one's basic day-to-day life, and one's relations with the church. And that cuts off the ability of God to truly work in the soul, because as I think Father Ruder mentioned in his and they're using the, the heart of a Catholic as a spirit of dependence. Um, and that's, that's just made all the more difficult by the milieu in which we live. And just to kind of, you know, touch base and include on this note, you, know, you have Bishop Yon Island Hoogan, I think is one of the more articulate and more prolific of the Americanists, who really um, lays down this vision. Um, and who's extremely, I would say, naively optimistic about um, the direction of human affairs and the role of America in that. And yet, um, he, he, in one speech that he gives right after, um, in the 1890s, he comments on the fact that Leo XIII had in his judgment, answer the question of French republicanism. And it's what, for a lot of traditional Catholics, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe not so much in the U.S., but certainly in France, they'd be very familiar with this. It's called the Rallement. Okay. Uh, the 13th wrote an encyclical to the French bishops exhorting them to work with the French Republic and not to continue to press for return of the monarchy, which Byron says and comments on that, that whole nations are saved, Leo is doing for France what France is unable to do. He is uniting her people, giving to her a durable government, and staying the hand of religious persecution. 
Say what some may, such are in France the result of the papal encyclicals in favor of the Republic. So he's very, very high on that. Of course, what we know is that 10 years later, the French Republic, that same French Republic, traditionally the 13th called the French to rally towards, um, did its best to try to crush and destroy and eliminate the church. Wow. And so again, Bishop uh, Ireland just gets blinded to in his admiration for this idea that somehow American constitutionalism and those systems relating to it represented the flower of the gospel to the real and underlying spirit of those governments. And ultimately, I think his project had the same effect as one of St. Paul's interactions. So I'm going to take a, um, a certain quote and go in with this um, from Bishop Ireland. And he's in his speech that he gives about Catholics in America, and he's talking about the, how they should deal with the age in which they live. And he says that uh, irreligion is still only words, it did not still realities of the aspects of the age. For the realities have no existence away from God's altars. Tell all this to the age, to the modern age, and say to it, quote, Passing by and seeing your idols, I found also an altar on which was written to the unknown God. What therefore you worship without knowing that I preach to you. Unquote. Now, what Bishop Ireland is quoting is St. Paul in Athens on the uh, Agora. And St. Paul there is dealing with all the men who come there just to, as St. Luke says in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, hear and speak new things. And so St. Paul is trying to appeal to them on their level. And the fruit of St. Paul's uh, missionary uh, sermon on that occasion is that he's laughed out of town. Uh, they want nothing to do with him. And he has maybe one or two people of his whole crowd. They don't take him seriously. And I think in the end, this effort to view, let's say, um, the modern age, and also typified even by our own government as the answer to the future, and to try to you know, bring it in by appealing to it, as Louis XIII says in Testament of Valencia, it led to nothing else than to the church being derided and ignored. So. Uh. Oh, that is that is fascinating. So thank you. Thank you so much, Father, for bringing this all together for us and, and, and putting this all together. And I, and your, your background in history definitely showed it was, or political history definitely showed that was uh, a fascinating look back at that period and these periods uh, in American history and how it equated to, to church history. So thank you very much. No, it's my pleasure. I very much appreciate you having me on again. All right. Very good. Well, thank you, Father. And I think we'll be talking with you again here in a another four or five episodes or so, but uh, we'll give the other priests a chance and, and give you a little bit of a breather. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to and watching episode eight of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. Next week, we'll be welcoming the District Superior of Canada for the Society of St. Pius X, Father David Sherry, to answer a listener question about the crisis. Simply, what's wrong with the world and how can it be fixed? If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Also, please share this episode with someone who you might think would enjoy it. And if they don't know what a podcast is, please show them so that they can take advantage of all our episodes. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project. Until next week. Thank you for listening, and God bless you.